With prayer and with peace, we can beat this pipeline. Gonna need a lot of legal support, too. It's starting to look like. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM, in Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And yes, coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. Whether you like it or not, this is the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Glad you could join us here today. Desi Doyen, of course, is with us as ever. Hi, Desi. Hello. Uh, Newsflash for you. Everything that we planned, once again, (laughs) we're throwing out. We are completely (laughs) redoing the show on the fly. That's the way it works here in the uh, radio business, apparently, particularly when we have breaking news as we do uh, today. Uh, We've got uh, a a lot of news on uh, some presidential stuff, uh, polling, voting and so forth. Uh, That will come in a bit. But first, this breaking news, a federal judge has now denied the Standing Rock Sioux tribe's request to stop construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline set to run from North Dakota down to southern Illinois and send about half a million barrels of, uh, of crude per day down that route. The tribe uh, say that the uh, pipeline threatens their drinking water supplies and crosses sacred burial, uh, tribal burial grounds near their reservation. But there is a twist. So some bad news. We knew this uh, decision was coming down. Uh, They had applied for it last week, this uh, injunction in this case to stop the construction of this pipeline. So that is some disturbing news, which I'll explain in a minute. But there is also a late twist in this already breaking story that the opponents of the pipeline have described to the broadcast as a potential game changer. So that is that's ahead in the story as well. But let me sort of unpack what's going on. We had been waiting, as I said, for this ruling since last week. When the tribe appeared in uh, in federal district district court in D.C. seeking an injunction to stop the construction of this pipeline, at least a preliminary injunction, um, we spoke with the uh, chairman of the Standing Rock Sioux tribe, David Archambeau, about the case last week, just after his court appearance seeking that injunction. And as the protests out there in uh, in North Dakota and the southern part of the state continued to grow, 
near the construction site. That protest turned violent over the weekend after the tribe uh, presented evidence of sacred sites on uh, some of the private land on which the uh, uh, the pipeline is being built near the uh, tribal reservation. They had presented the evidence of those sacred sites in court on Friday and the oil pipeline construction uh, crew on Saturday brought in bulldozers to break that very ground, according to the tribe's attorneys. Pepper spray and attack dogs were deployed by a private security company hired by the Dallas-based pipeline company Energy Transfer uh, Partners. Uh, That led to injuries to protesters, including women and children and security personnel alike. The uh, protest camps have grown in the meantime to the thousands uh, of demonstrators, including support from tribes from all over the country. They say now more than 200 tribes, uh, members from more than yes. 200 uh, tribes have descended on uh, uh, the area there at the confluence of the Mississippi, Missouri and Cannonball Rivers in North Dakota in solidarity there with the Standing Rock Sioux. Uh, earlier today, in advance of the court ruling, Standing Rock Sioux Chairman Archambault asked protesters for a peaceful response to the court ruling, whatever it turned out to be. I ask that regardless of the outcome, that you remain calm, that you uh, be prayerful prayerful, and have faith and believe. Uh, Regardless of the outcome, I believe we won. Um, I know there's a lot that has been accomplished in a short amount of time. We have tribes and people from all over the world coming in support of this. And... If you believe and if you have faith, whether the ruling is on our favor or not, there's nothing but good things that are going to come. And I want to thank each and every one of you uh, for your presence, for your commitment, and for your support. And I also want to ask that you remain nonviolent. We were told by the spirits that Without violence, we could beat this pipeline. With prayer and with peace, we can beat this pipeline. That was chairman of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, uh, David Archambault II, uh, calling uh, for protesters to remain peaceful today. That was in advance of the uh, court ruling, which we now have denying the preliminary injunction that the tribe was seeking to stop the construction. But as I say, there is yet another twist that's coming ahead. But I want to explain uh, what I can understand. I've been plowing through this 58-page court ruling that uh, came out just before we go to air here today, so I'm doing my best to understand it on on the fly. This is from Judge James E. Boesberg. He is a Barack Obama appointee. Uh, though looking at his past record, he has, uh, I think it's fair to say, Desi Doyne, he's a, a conservative uh, ju- uh, judge. I suppose this would be called moderate these days. Moderate, okay. Uh, he's, for example, he's the one who ordered the uh, the release of the 14,000 uh, uh, Hillary Clinton emails in response to the judicial watch suit. We may have uh, some more on that if we can get to it later today on the program. In any event... Uh, uh, in his uh, in his ruling here, denying the preliminary injunction, 
Uh, he notes that uh, the tribe had asserted principally that the Army Corps of Engineers had flouted its duty to engage in tribal consultation under the National Historic Preservation Act, the NHPA, and that irreparable harm would ensue if the construction continued. Judge says that after digging through a substantial record on an expedited basis, the court cannot concur with the tribe. It concludes that the Corps has likely complied with the National Historic Preservation Act and that the tribe has not shown that it will suffer injury that would be prevented by any injunction that the court could issue. The motion will thus be denied, they say. Now, digging in a little bit further... Um, the judge notes here that uh, the project of this magnitude, he writes, often necessitates an extensive federal appraisal and permitting process, but not so here. Domestic oil pipelines, unlike natural gas pipelines, require no general approval from the federal government. Did you know that? Did you know there was a difference between uh, oil and, and natural gas pipeline? In fact, the Dakota Access Pipeline needs almost no federal permitting of any kind because 99% of it uh, of its route traverses private land and there's no jurisdiction there and there's no jurisdiction for the federal government so yeah. if 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 i own uh, the land and the oil company comes along and offers me a whole bunch of money to allow the pipeline to go across my land it, I, and I accept that money. It can be done. The federal government, I don't think any government at that point has to approve it, at least not the federal government. And this is a suit in federal court. Uh, the judge notes one significant exception, however, concerns construction activities in federally regulated waters at hundreds of discrete sites along the pipeline route. The Army Corps of Engineers needed to permit this activity under the Clean Water Act or the Rivers and Harbors Act. And sometimes both. In this case, for the Dakota Access Pipeline, it permitted these activities under a general permit known as Nationwide Permit 12. Now, the tribe alleges that the Corps violated multiple federal statutes in doing so, including the National Environmental Policy Act and the National Historic Preservation Act. Um, the judge, however, sees it differently, and I'll get into why in a moment. Uh, but uh, two points I want to uh, mention here that the, while the Army Corps of Engineers approved the crossings over uh, uh, over these these water crossings and so forth, as we discussed on this program a couple of days ago, uh, three federal agencies disagreed with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers decision to do that, including the EPA, who felt felt that there should be further environmental studies done here. Now, Desi, uh, nationwide permit 12. What can you tell me about that? Because it's being used to build these pipelines at a frenetic rate, it seems, all over the country. This is what they were trying to use in uh, in, in the Keystone, in the now-rejected Keystone XL pipeline? Yeah, because the Keystone XL pipeline crossed an international border. That's the only reason that President Obama had the authority to be able to deny it. So when it comes to these really long nationwide you know, four-state projects, yeah. like this very long Dakota Access pipeline, what the oil industry has done in concert with the Army Corps of Engineers has figured out a way to fast track these permits by breaking them up into smaller projects that fall within a state mm -hmm. so that they don't have these issues of, hey, we can we can say this is a huge pipeline and we have to then uh, bring in federal approval. It only, oh, it's only a state approval then. 
except when it goes across a federally regulated waterway. Gotcha. And that is the case here where uh, the judge notes that despite the broad lawsuit, the Standing Rock Sioux tribe seeking a preliminary injunction only alleged a violation of the National Historic Preservation Act. Uh, they did not seek anything concerning concerning their environmental concerns here and the fact that this will affect their, potentially, could affect their drinking water. That was not part of this preliminary injunction. It's part of the larger suit, I believe, but not currently in this injunction that was denied today. So the NHPA, uh, Historic National Historic Preservation Act, uh, encompasses sites of cultural or religious significance to Indian tribes and requires that federal agencies consult with tribes prior to issuing permits that might affect these historic resources. The tribe claims... Uh, that the court did not fulfill this obligation before permitting the uh, pipeline activities. Um, And he goes on to note that the tribe did not press its environmental claims here in this particular case, nor does it seek a preliminary injunction to protect itself from potential environmental harm that might arise from having the pipeline on its doorstep, according to the judge. Instead, it asserted only that the pipeline construction activity will cause irreparable harm to historic or cultural properties of great significance uh, as it uh, requires grading and clearing of land. So that's what he was looking at. And in the case, he had to therefore look at the NHPA, National Historic Preservation Act, which Congress enacted in 1966 to, quote, foster conditions under which our modern society and our historic property can exist in productive harmony. The section here of note apparently is Section 106 of the Act, requiring the federal agency to consider the effect of its undertakings on property of historical significance, which obviously includes property or uh, of cultural or religious significance to Indian tribes. Um, It's described as the stop, look and listen provision. Section 106 is the agency must also give the advisory council Uh, on historic protection, uh, which is charged with passing regulations to govern the implementation of that section, 106, a reasonable opportunity to comment on the undertaking. Once the agency has had that opportunity to comment on the undertaking, apparently, as the judge writes, once this is done, section 106 is satisfied. In other words, He writes, the provision does not mandate that the permitting agency take any particular uh, preservation measures to protect these resources. All it does is has to have to get a comment from them. Once they've given them the opportunity to comment, that's it. Even if their comment is don't do this, it's terrible. Stop this construction. It doesn't matter. They can move ahead and and do it anyway. And and that is exactly what uh, Chairman Archambault said in the interview that we had with him previously. Mm -hmm. Uh, He said that the way that the law works, they're required to inform you, but they're not required to get your approval. Right. They basically said, hey, we're going to do this. Four months later, they said, here's the formal plan. It's final. Goodbye. Yeah. Now, their uh, their attorney, uh, Jan Hasselman, who is with the uh, uh, Earth Justice uh, Organization, uh, has said that they, as a matter of fact, I think they have already appealed. Yes, they've already filed. They have the appeal ready to go. They've already filed an appeal, yes. Right. Uh, And uh, and in the meantime, state authorities have announced uh, earlier in the week that uh, law enforcement officers from across the state were being mobilized at the protest site, that National Guard members 
would be standing by. They would work security at traffic checkpoints uh, and so forth. Uh, the Great Plains Tribal Chairman's Association has asked the Federal Justice Department to send monitors to the site because they're claiming that racial profiling is occurring. Uh, and uh, I should note on, on Thursday, North Dakota's archaeologist, the state archaeologist, said that uh, a piece of uh, private land not previously surveyed by the state to determine if it had uh, Indian relics and so forth, uh, that that would be surveyed next week and that if artifacts are found, pipeline work would cease or at least could cease. Um, So that's ahead. In the meantime now, and they had this also, it seems, ready to go because this announcement came out just after the court uh, released its ruling. Uh, The Department of Justice, the Department of the Army, And the Department of the Interior uh, issued this statement saying they appreciated the district court's opinion on the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers compliance with the National Historic Preservation Act. However, they write important issues raised by the Standing Rock Sioux tribe and other tribal nations and their members regarding the Dakota Access Pipeline specifically and the pipeline related decision making generally remain. Therefore, the Department of the Army, the Department of Justice and the Department of the Interior will take the following steps. The Army will not authorize constructing the Dakota Access Pipeline on core land bordering or under Lake uh, Oahe, is that Oahe. how you say it? Oahe, until it can determine whether it will need to reconsider any of the previous decisions regarding uh, the, the site at the lake under the National Environmental Policy Act and other federal laws. Therefore, construction of the pipeline on Army Corps land bordering or under Lake Oahe will not go forward at this time. The Army will move expeditiously to make this determination as everyone involved, including the pipeline company and its workers, deserves a clear and timely resolution. In the interim, we request, I guess they can't require this, right? but they say, we request that the pipeline company voluntarily pause all construction activity within 20 miles east or west of Lake Oahe. That is from the uh, uh, part of the uh, statement from the uh, joint statement from the Department of Justice, Department of Army and the Department of Interior calling on construction to stop. Uh, And I guess they're uh, they can require it to be stopped uh, across the lakes, across the waterways, because that's federal area. But on the uh, the the, uh, 20 miles in, in any direction. Uh, that they can only make a request. Right. That the the private stop. lands. Yes. OK. Uh, so, man, uh, a lot of this is is just uh, incredible what is going on. And uh, and this court battle, this is obviously the next fight, uh, you know, for environmentalists and uh, the tribes alike. Uh, when it comes to stopping these pipelines, they were successful at stopping the Keystone XL pipeline. I watched a statement by uh, from uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr. last night that he had sent up to North Dakota. Uh, he has been a great champion of uh, uh, a great environmental champion. He basically said, look, they are now doing this. The, the, the cost of renewable energy is now as cheap as 
uh, fossil fuel, as dirty fossil fuel energy like the Bakken shale oil that they're attempting to send through this pipeline. And he says, at least uh, Bobby Kennedy does, that the reason they are scrambling to get this infrastructure in place as soon as possible all over the country, whether it's the Dakota Access Pipeline or any of these other fossil fuel-based uh, you know, ports and pipelines and so forth, is because they they want to set their marker down right now. They put these things in place. These things cost billions of dollars, and it takes years to recoup their investment. And they feel, I guess, that it's more likely that they'll be able to continue exploiting uh, this dirty energy instead of renewables. You know, if they say, hey, man, we, we spent uh, $3 billion on this pipeline already. We need to continue uh, putting oil through it for the next 10 or 20 years in order to pay it off. Yes, and the banking industry, the bank, the big banks that are uh, putting that are up the loans them. to yeah. fund these gigantic infrastructure projects, as Bobby Kennedy mentioned in this video, they could just as easily spend that three billion dollars on expanding and upgrading our electric transmission grid, which is what is partly the bottleneck holding back the use of renewable energy. So, if you spend your billions on fossil fuel infrastructure that will be used for at least twenty to thirty years, you're not spending it on the electrical grid infrastructure infrastructure that would bring yep. renewable energy a direct competition to the fossil fuel industry. Now, there's one more thing. I know we're getting close on That's time, okay. but in this statement from the Department of Justice, I think this is really, mm -hmm. really huge. It says this case has highlighted the need for a serious discussion on whether there should be nationwide reform with respect to considering tribes' views on these types of infrastructure projects. Oh, you think? Yes. yes. Therefore, this fall, we will invite tribes to formal government-to-government consultations on two questions, whether the existing statutory framework with the federal government could do better to ensure meaningful tribal input. Oh, yeah, I think so. And should new legislation be proposed to Congress to alter that statutory framework and promote <laughs> such goals? Of course, you know, that's Good, Good luck, luck with, with that. that. Yeah, exactly. However, what I thought was really, really nice was yeah. at the very end of this, they say, we fully support the rights of all Americans to assemble and speak freely. So it is now incumbent on all of us to develop a path forward that serves the broadest public interest. So the fact that they upheld the right mm -hmm. of Americans to speak freely and they upheld the right of peaceful protest, I think is really important and, and a big statement here from the Department of Justice. It, it, indeed, because I know a lot of people had been critical of the Obama administration for not taking more action here. And I guess there is a reason to be critical. Um, uh, but now they do seem to at least be taking some action. <laughs> there uh, was one tribe, yeah. the Winnebago tried their uh, Twitter account. They put out that looks like somebody got to President Obama. Somebody got to him. Yeah. yeah well, you well. know, when he was in Laos just over the weekend, yeah. he was put on the spot by a student in Laos asking him about it. And he clearly did not know about what was going on. He mm -hmm. said, well, we've been trying to do better by Indian country and I will look into that. Perhaps he did. Apparently he did. Yeah, because this was a... This was a pretty strong statement, and it was ready to come out just as soon as the the court came down with uh, with its ruling. Uh, other uh, people have uh, obviously been uh, critical of the judge in this case, but it seems to me, again, going through very quickly these uh, fifty eight pages as best as I could understand it, it looks like he was following the law, the rule of law here, yeah. the word of the law. And uh, and I think that's why the Department of Justice has said, hey, maybe we need to look at these laws in the uh, in the near future uh, and, and give these Native Americans more say in these projects. I think that's certainly true. The uh, conclusion of the uh, uh, the uh, judge's um, 
opinion here today, Judge Boesberg's opinion. He writes, as it has previously mentioned, this court does not lightly countenance any depredation of lands that hold significance to the Standing Rock Sioux. Aware of the indignities visited upon the tribe over the last centuries, the court scrutinizes the permitting process here with particular care. Having done so, the court must nonetheless conclude that the tribe has not demonstrated that an injunction is warranted here. The court, therefore, will seek uh, will issue a contemporaneous order denying the plaintiff's motion for preliminary injunction. So it does seem to be a well-considered case. And uh, now with the uh, Justice Department and the Department of Army and the Department of Interior stepping in and uh, stopping at least part of the construction, Uh, underneath this lake or near this lake and requesting that it uh, stop it elsewhere. Uh, There uh, there is reason to be hopeful in uh, North Dakota today, it sounds like to me. Indeed. With that hopeful note, we'll come back with uh, much more that is uh, much, much less hopeful here on the Bradcast. Uh, I'm Brad Friedman, (laughs) and this is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Summer has come and passed The innocent can never last Wake me up when September ends Actually, wake me up when November ends. (laughs) I think that would be better. Uh, I would love to take a nap uh, for the next uh, 60 days until this uh, <laughs> until this mess is over. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. All right. Uh, some uh, presidential news, some election news, some voting news. Uh, Some news news in another sign that the presidential race has tightened. Hillary Clinton's lead over Donald Trump has now shrunk in three key swing states. And Trump has overtaken her in Ohio. This according to the latest Quinnipiac polls. Trump now leads in Ohio 46 to 45. That's just a one point advantage. But that is a five point swing from Quinnipiac's early August poll when Hillary Clinton led by four points. Uh, so that's a big swing, five points since uh, since early August. With third party candidates included in the new in the new poll, Trump has actually a wider lead in the Buckeye State, forty one to thirty seven. That's a four point lead, uh, followed by uh, Libertarian Gary Johnson at fourteen percent, and uh, Green Party's uh, Jill Stein at four percent. 
So he's now leading in Ohio. Trump has also gained ground in Florida. He is currently tied with uh, Hillary Clinton, 47 points apiece there. And the race is also tied when when you include third-party candidates in Florida. Uh, Quinnipiac's most recent poll, however, of Florida showed a one-point advantage for Clinton. So uh, Trump has just made up uh, a little bit of ground there in in Florida. But I remember at the time when I reported originally on that Quinnipiac poll, a lot of folks got mad. Well, let's be specific. Folks over at Daily Coast got (laughs) mad at me for pointing out that Quinnipiac poll. They said, yeah, but she's winning in all of these other polls, and which is true. She was. Uh, but then the polls started tightening up and we saw more like this in Florida. And now we're seeing another poll um, uh, from Quinnipiac showing us something similar. Clinton still leads in North Carolina, however, by four points, according to uh, Quinnipiac, and uh, in Pennsylvania by five points. But her lead has diminished. Uh, Since Quinnipiac last polled Pennsylvania in early August, there she had led by 10 points. Now she leads only by five. Uh, She maintains a lead in North Carolina and Pennsylvania, even when third party candidates are introduced in North Carolina. Uh, she leads by four points with the third party candidates in the polling in Pennsylvania. She leads Trump by five points uh, with Johnson at nine and Stein at three. Quinnipiac has not previously polled North Carolina on the general election this cycle. And these, again, these are likely voters. Talked a little bit about this a few days ago and the fact that we're now moving from uh, these polls are moving from registered voters to likely voters. Which is a much smaller pie of the registered yes, voters. Yes, and each uh, polling outfit has a different, uh, you know, scheme as to how they decide who are the likely voters versus just registered voters. And you also make the point often that among likely voters, not all of them turn out either. Uh, of of the likely voters. Yes. Uh, of the well, of the people who are considered to be likely voters. Like I say, they have different methodology in each case from these pollsters. Now the. TPM poll tracker average now for these four states where Clinton's lead has either shrunk or disappeared entirely Uh, in Florida. The average this is not just Quinnipiac, but all of the uh, polls uh, from TPM's poll tracker average for Florida shows Clinton leading by just uh, just less than one point in Florida. If you average all the recent polls to date uh, in North Carolina, Clinton is leading by just under two points. So that is still a a toss up as well in North Carolina, according to that uh, TPM average. And for Ohio, Trump now leads Clinton by just over two points in Ohio. According to the uh, TPM average, Pennsylvania has Clinton leading by just over four points in that same average. At the same time, while Quinnipiac shows North Carolina, so Clinton leading in North Carolina, Donald Trump is leading in North Carolina by three points, uh, according to a new poll of likely voters from Suffolk University that is just out uh, today or uh, actually late yesterday. The uh, state, uh, as I note, is a toss up. The last poll of North Carolina uh, released prior to this uh, from uh, was from CBS YouGov. That showed a four point lead for Clinton. Uh, And now Donald Trump is leading there with three points, 
according to Suffolk University. Uh, although I should note it is within the 4.4 uh, margin, 4.4 uh, percent margin of error. So that is essentially a toss-up. But that is once again why every vote matters, why we cover this so much, why we cover uh, this attempt by Republicans to keep voters from being able to cast their vote at all, why all of this is important. And uh, specifically, Hillary Clinton was in North Carolina this week at a uh, at a rally in Charlotte, North Carolina, talking about the effort by the state, by North Carolina, by Texas, where we've got news in a moment as well concerning these uh, these laws. Uh, Wisconsin, why these uh, Republican run states are all attempting uh, you know, to keep legitimate legal voters, uh, hundreds of them, actually millions when you add up all of the states, millions of already registered voters who will be losing their right to vote this year under some of these uh, photo ID restriction laws. Um, you know, she talks about why it is that Republicans are doing it. And on, on, on this, she is <laughs> exactly right. As we have pointed out, and as I will point out more uh, in a moment, but here was her her uh, her comments on uh, this law in North Carolina, where, by the way, the federal court has struck down North Carolina's attempt, at least for now, to impose strict photo ID voting restrictions, even though they are still fighting to limit early uh, early voting hours. North Carolina, under the current governor and legislature trying to restrict people's right to vote. Now that's not just happening in North Carolina, unfortunately, it's happening across America. And courts have been overturning restrictions that make it harder, not just for African Americans, but low-income people, Latinos, young people. So this has been a concerted effort to undermine the right to vote, even to make it hard for people with disabilities to cast ballots. Well, what's the best way to repudiate that kind of underhanded, mean-spirited effort to deprive people of their votes? Get out and vote and make it clear we're not putting up with that. These laws are a blast from the Jim Crow past, and they have no place in 21st century America. Well, apparently they do have place all over 21st century America, including down in Texas, where we thought we had some good news recently. The most conservative court, uh, federal appell appellate court in the land, uh, agreed that Texas's law violated uh, the Voting Rights Act, that it was racially discriminatory, and uh, they had ordered a, uh, a court-ordered remedy for that photo ID voting restriction down in Texas, which had been agreed to by the state of Texas and by the uh, Department of Justice, which had sued uh, the state of Texas and by uh, private plaintiffs who had sued the state of Texas. Everyone had agreed just a week or two ago. We covered this. It was very good news for Texas voters that they were going to be allowed to vote, even if they did not have the type of strict photo ID required under the uh, Texas Republican law. All they had to do was sign a declaration, essentially, saying that they did not have, that they had a, a, a reasonable impediment to getting one of those photo IDs, and they had to show um, uh, a, a series of other documents to identify exactly who they were. And now Texas appears to be undermining 
And this is just incredible, undermining uh, this court agreement that they struck just was a week ago, a week or two ago. Texas is violating a court order intended to prevent it from uh, from suppressing the vote, according to the U.S. Department of Justice, which has now uh, went along with the private plaintiffs in this case to file an emergency file for emergency relief in federal court. The court order that they had agreed to, that the state had agreed to, provides that registered voters who present valid uh, voter regist- a valid voter registration certificate, a certified birth certificate, a current utility bill, a bank statement, a government check, a paycheck, or any other government document that displays the voter's name and address that they may cast a regular ballot without being challenged so long as they sign a, quote, reasonable impediment declaration. This is a document stating that the voter was not reasonably able to obtain the forms of ID mandated by the illegal Texas law. That was what was agreed to. And yet the uh, DOJ filed earlier this week a complaint saying that Texas is not complying with the order. Texas's press release, uh, press releases, voter education materials and poll worker training manuals claim that the right to vote now extends only to voters who comply with the illegal law. Those who have, quote, have not obtained and cannot obtain I.D., But the agreement does not say that a voter has to uh, declare that they, quote, cannot obtain I.D. As the DOJ notes, this cannot obtain standard appears to forbid voters impacted by the uh, voter suppression law from voting unless it is literally impossible for them to obtain an I.D. But that is not what the court order had said. Now, Ian Milheiser, writing over at Think Progress, goes on to cite, for example, the case of Eric Kenny. Eric Kenny is a Texas voter. He was disenfranchised by this very law that they have been uh, trying to remedy here. He was disenfranchised by the Texas law in 2014. Uh, the Guardian had reported on Eric Kenny's case and his attempt to get the ID that he needed to vote under the Texas law. He made multiple trips to the state office that issues these IDs, yet Kenny, because he does not drive and he lives in a low-income area without access to this office, because of that, each trip involved taking three buses, a journey that can stretch to a couple of hours, and then when Kenny arrived at the office... He had to stand in line waiting for up to uh, a further three hours to be seen before finally making another two hour schlep home, according to The Guardian. Each time Kenny made his trip, he was told that he lacked the paperwork that was required to present uh, that he was required to present in order to obtain this supposedly free I.D. Eventually, he gave up. After he was refused an ID because his birth certificate listed his name as Carruthers, his mother's maiden name, as opposed to Kenny, which is the name of his father. So uh, he just gave up. He just gave up. And he is a guy uh, who would who would be able to vote under the new remedy unless the state of Texas moves the goalposts as they appear to be trying to do. Milheiser writes, was it really impossible for Kenny to obtain an ID? Could Kenny comply with Texas's cannot obtain standard rather than the court's less rigid cannot reasonably obtain standard? 
It's far from clear whether it was literally impossible for Kenny to get this uh, to get this ID. He could have hired legal counsel to pursue his voting rights. He could have accepted that his legal name is now Eric Carruthers rather than Eric Kenny. But he viewed that as an insult to his father. Uh, or perhaps he could have attempted to uh, legally change his name to uh, to Kenny. Because, you know, apparently uh, his name is actually Eric Carruthers once he found out the information. So it was not literally impossible. He could have obtained... But as far as reasonably obtained, it kind of seems like all of these multi-hour trips back and forth to the DMV uh, sounds like a pretty reasonable ob uh, attempt to obtain the ID, all done <laughs> to obtain the ID simply to cast a single vote. So uh, that's what uh, people are having to go through in Texas, and that's why now the Department of Justice uh, has gone back to court. Uh, Ernest Canning at Bradblog.com writes about this case today, and he actually calls uh, on the Department of Justice to ask the Attorney General of Texas to be held in contempt. The Attorney General has said that he would use these lists of people signing these declarations uh, that he would investigate the lists and uh, look to see if uh, he might be able to uh, bring a perjury case against them for lying. And that's why this standard, whether it's, a, you know, cannot obtain or cannot reasonably obtain, is so important. So this uh, scofflaw, Attorney General uh, Ken Paxton down there in Texas, and he is a scofflaw, by the way, He's the attorney general. He's the top law enforcement official in the state of te uh, Texas. He is currently under indictment for several felonies concerning securities fraud. And this is a guy who's saying that he's going to use the list of people who sign this uh, these declarations to potentially bring perjury charges against them if they uh, didn't. If their attempt to obtain an ID was not, in his opinion, I guess, reasonable. Gosh, that's not intimidating or suppressing at all. No, not at all. Uh, and uh, it's also in violation of the court order, which said that the people who signed this declaration cannot be challenged. Uh, another election official is uh, using this as well, has said that he will investigate every single person that uh, signs this. Uh, so read about that at bradblog.com. But it's important to note once again that the type of uh, voter fraud that could potentially be stopped by these laws is almost non-existent. For example, in Wisconsin, where the federal court has allowed uh, their law to move forward, their photo ID law will remain in place this year in November. In that swing state uh, and that despite the fact that a Wisconsin study found just seven cases of fraud among three million votes cast in the state's 2004 election. And none of those seven cases were the kind of fraud that would be prevented by uh, by their uh, the photo ID law in Wisconsin. Similarly, in 2014, Iowa Secretary of State Matt Schultz. Uh, carried out a, a Republican, by the way, carried out a two year investigation into election mis misconduct in his state. He was able to uncover, write this down, Desi Doyen, zero cases of in-person voter fraud. I'm sorry, how many was that? That would be zero. Okay. 
and now, uh, well, and now we actually have uh, two new studies out within just the past few days here. A News 21 analysis four years ago that we covered uh, at bradblog.com and here on the Bradcast. Uh, four years ago, uh, a news analysis of more than 2,000 election fraud cases in all 50 states found that while some fraud had occurred since 2000, this was back in 2014, the rate was infinitesimal compared with the 146 million registered voters in that same 12-year span. The analysis found only 10 cases, 10 cases of voter impersonation, the only kind of fraud that can possibly be prevented uh, by those uh, photo ID uh, restriction laws at the polling places. And this year, News 21 reviewed cases in Arizona, Ohio, Georgia, Texas, and Kansas where the politicians there have expressed concern about uh, voter fraud. And they found hundreds of allegations, but few prosecutions in those years between 2012 and 2016. Attorneys general in those states, in fact, prosecuted 38 cases of vote fraud, though other cases may have been litigated at the at the county level. But on the state level, 38 cases of vote fraud, at least one third of those cases involved non-voters, such as election officials or volunteers. That's the insider voter fraud that is much more prevalent. And of all of those cases, none, none of them, none of the cases prosecuted was for voter impersonation, the only type of voter fraud that can possibly be deterred by these photo ID restrictions. That, even though Wisconsin governor, where this will be in place, uh, Wisconsin governor uh, told News 21 uh, that the number of fraud cases doesn't matter. He said it's beside the point. All it takes is one person whose vote is canceled by someone not voting legally, and that's a problem. He said, Scott Walker said, I always tell folks who oppose the ID law, tell me whose vote they want canceled out. Well, I will tell you uh, whose vote I don't want canceled out, Governor Walker. The 60,000 voters in the state of Wisconsin, the 60,000 legally registered voters in the state of Wisconsin who do not have the type of photo ID that is now required to vote under the law that you signed. Those voters, those tens of thousands of voters who will have their vote canceled out because they will be disenfranchised by your law. One more point before we get to a break here on this, because uh, there was a second study, and this was written about by uh, Zoltan Hajnal in the L.A. Times today. He's a professor of political science at UC San Diego. He's the co-author of the uh, this new report, Voter Identification Laws and the Suppression of Minority Voters. He writes uh, in the L.A. Times today, the North Carolina voter identification law was blocked last week when the U.S. Supreme Court denied an emergency appeal to reinstate it before the 2016 elections. That's good news for minorities in the Tar Heel state, he says, because we now know that such laws significantly suppress their votes. Unfortunately, uh, one fifth of the nation's population is still subject to strict voter, uh, voter ID laws. The first of the laws requiring ID was implemented back in 2008 and only recently has enough time passed to produce clear answers to the questions of how the demand for ID affects turnout. They found uh, that uh, they, they followed voter turnout from 2006 to 2014 among members of, uh, of different groups 
They followed almost a quarter million Americans in all in states with and without strict ID laws, and they found stark patterns where strict ID laws are instituted. Racial and ethnic minority turnout significantly declines. So one of the ways they analyzed the data, they compared the gap in the turnout among races and ethnic voters. It's been well established that minorities turn out less than whites in most elections in the U.S. And their research finds that uh, the racial turnout gap doubles or triples in states that enact strict ID laws. Latinos, uh, he writes, uh, are the biggest losers here. Their turnout is 7.1 percentage points lower in general elections in states. 7.1 percent lower in general elections and 5.3 percent lower in primary elections where strict ID has been implemented by these Republican-run states. Strict ID also lowers African-American, Asian-American, and multiracial American turnout, according to this study, uh, which they say they control for factors other than uh, photo ID laws. And yet, regardless of how they looked at the data, we found that strict photo ID laws suppress minority votes. That, despite, as uh, uh, Hajnal notes here, uh, Justin Levitt, we've had him on these on the program as well. His study, uh, he w- he's a law professor. Uh, he's now working at the Department of Justice. He tracked voter imper- uh, impersonation allegations for 14 years, from 2000 to 2014. Out of more than one billion votes cast during that time, he found just 31 instances, potential instances of the type of fraud that could be stopped by photo ID restrictions. Hajnal goes on to say that the suppression patterns in these photo ID states have very real political consequences. In states, for example, where uh, Latinos, uh, the voices of Latinos, blacks and Asian Americans become more muted because of this and the relative influence of white America grows because of this. The influence of Democrats and liberals wanes and power of Republicans grows because of these laws which they now have empirical evidence. They've now, this, this, you know, these laws have been in place in enough states for enough years that they can look at it and actually see. For example, the turnout gap between Republicans and Democrats in primary contests more than doubles from 4.3, po- uh, 4.3% in states with strict ID laws to 9.8 points in states with strict ID laws. Likewise, the gap between uh, self-identified conservatives and liberals more than doubles from almost eight points to more than 20 points in states where these photo ID restrictions are in place. That's why Republicans are fighting for these laws. And, you know, you hear them a lot of times their defense, this Hans von Spakovsky, terrible guy who's been defending these this right winger has been defending these laws for years, you know, says, hey, in Georgia, the turnout went up after we passed uh, the photo ID law. The turnout of minorities went up in 2008. What happened in 2008 that might have driven up uh, African-American voting in the state of Georgia and elsewhere? Oh, yeah. Barack Obama was on the ticket. So, yeah, 
uh, <laughs> you'll hear that's what you'll hear. Uh, so African American uh, turnout did go up in some of those states. Did it go up to the same proportions that it went up in other states that didn't have this type of uh, voter suppression law in place? No. And uh, we now have empirical evidence of all of that. He goes on, this report goes on to say that the down-ballot races could be affected uh, where these laws are in place. Senate races in Indiana, Ohio, Arizona, and Wisconsin, all states with strict ID laws, and all states with Republican incumbents are currently too close to call and could be affected by the laws that are now in place. Strict voter ID laws, he says, hurt minorities and they distort and skew American democracy. They do indeed. And that's what we try to unskew on this program, uh, the distortion that has become of American democracy. All right. Uh, yeah, I think we need to take a quick break here and uh, and we'll come back with uh, with more broadcast, more stories, a lot more to cover here today that we can squeeze in with all of the breaking news and everything else that has uh, thrown us off. Told you we were going to make it up on the fly, Desi Doyen. <laughs> I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Yes. What you say? That's the uh, message. Hit the road, Donald Trump. That's a message from Minnesota Democrats who have now filed suit to try to get uh, the Republican presidential nominee uh, to get his name removed from the state's general election ballot. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Uh, the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, that's uh, known as the DFL, the Democrats are known as the DFL up in uh, up in Minnesota. Uh, on Thursday, they filed a lawsuit claiming that the party, the Republican Party, Minnesota Republican Party, failed to correctly nominate its presidential electors. These are the people who uh, will actually cast the state's 10 electoral college votes that they failed to do this in accordance with state law. The chair of the Minnesota Republican Party uh, said that they last month had uh, (laughs) that they they called a special meeting to approve alternative electors because they had neglected to do so at their convention earlier. I guess they just forgot they elected they chose their electors, but they didn't choose the alternates. Uh, and so they uh, someone noticed a few weeks ago that so far Donald Trump had not been placed on the ballot oh. in the state of Minnesota. Uh, and it turns out it was because they didn't have their alternate electors yet. And so they called a meeting to do it. The problem is the state law in Minnesota. And I know Republicans care about the rule of law. They keep telling you they that's do. what they say. Uh, that uh, the state law says presidential electors and alternates for the major political parties of this state shall be nominated by delegate conventions called. 
Bloops. And they were not, in this case, uh, called by uh, <laughs> by uh, a convention. It was a special meeting. Uh, so uh, we'll see. The state Supreme Court uh, is acting quickly, as they do uh, in Minnesota, apparently, on cases like this. And they have now ordered Democrats to tell the court why the suit could not have been filed earlier, two weeks earlier, when... Uh, when it was clear what had actually happened, the court has also asked the Minnesota Secretary of State to say when ballots would need to be prepared because they got to go out momentarily. Early voting starts September 23rd, I believe it is, in Minnesota. Uh, and uh, the court has asked the Republican Party uh, to uh, to address the issues of the suit. And those filings are due today, by the end of the day today. Suit was filed yesterday. Answers required today. Obviously, they need to move fast on this. The uh, Republican Party has taken the opportunity to uh, call this a baseless and politically corrupt attempt by state Democrats uh, to try to rig the election <laughs> this way. That word does not mean what they think it means. Well, uh, apparently, uh, well, I don't know. I guess if you well, don't have a it, candidate on the ballot, that's... Uh, I wouldn't call that rigging. Of, that's that's all riggy. I'm saying. Rigging, no. it's They're just mad that the Democrats outmaneuvered them. Uh, well... <laughs> it sounds like. Well, I, actually, I think they outmaneuvered themselves here okay, by screwing it up. They screwed it up. And you can bet if this had been the other way around, Republicans would be saying, you know, the rule of law requires. I mean, hell, all you got to do is go back to 2000 and think about all of those uh, hundreds of thousands of ballots they were throwing out, claiming that, oh, the, the Chad was swinging. It was not, uh, you know, entirely removed. Therefore, they didn't follow the rule of law. Therefore, we must throw out this vote. And of course, those same Republicans went to the U.S. Supreme Court to stop the counting of the ballots altogether in 2000, speaking of uh, rigging elections. And uh, that is exactly how George W. Bush became the president. Well, we had all kinds of other things I'd hoped to get to today. But uh, thanks to the, uh, uh, the court, I guess, the D.C. court, we're going to have to hold those until our next thrilling episode of the Bradcast. And I can tell you, we've got a lot of good stuff to cover in that next episode. <laughs> Stuff that I had really hoped to get to today, but didn't. In any event, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. My thanks to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. And my thanks to those of you who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help both Desi and I continue to do what we do as we try to make sense of the senseless and try to explain what the hell is actually going on in our democracy and in our courts. Um... You know, aside from the, the, the partisan prattle out there to explain what is actually going on. We will do more of that in our next episode. But thanks to those of you who have helped us to uh, continue doing it up to now. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it as ever for free at bradblog.com or over at iTunes or your favorite podcast site where we hope you'll give us a good review, make it a little bit easier for everyone else to find us as well. If you'd like to drop me email, and I was going to read some of that too, but that'll be next time as well. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. You can also find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.